You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible-teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're beginning a new study of the book of 1 Peter. We're calling Road Trip. With this week's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. You know, I recognize some of us enjoy traveling more than others. I enjoy flying, especially when I've got to get somewhere in an efficient way. But when I have my choice and I have the opportunity to drive somewhere, give me a drive. I love exploring. Ellen loves exploring. We like having our own car so we can drive and see things. Our family took what maybe was the most adventurous road trip uh, we've ever done in 2011. It was a two-week trip. Uh, We were packed up and ready to go. We came to church on that Sunday morning. Uh, left here, drove down Southwest Parkway, threw everything in the car, and got on the road. We were driving to California was our destination. As we drove through Amarillo, I sang the song. Of course, most of you are thinking about Amarillo by morning. And then we go further, and we spend the night in New Mexico. The next day, we drove into Arizona and stood on the corner in Winslow, Arizona, and sang the song. And then we went to Lake Havasu, which I'd never heard of before, but we found out about it. It was a planned community. If you can imagine, they bought the London Bridge. Not the one you thought or thinking, not the one they were thinking. They were thinking the London Tower Bridge, which is probably the image in your brain. They bought the London Bridge and they had it shipped over. They took it apart piece by piece and sent it to Lake Havasu, Arizona, and then rebuilt it. But because it was the wrong bridge that they thought that it was going to be, it didn't fit, and then they had to do all kinds of projects, and that was an experience. Then we drive into California, and we get to Pasadena, and they're out of hotel rooms. And it just was an experience after experience after experience. We end up trying to find a single hotel room in Burbank, California. We had a great time. Did Disneyland, came back through Vegas, went to Cirque du Soleil show, and saw the Beatles music uh, there, and then hit Hoover Dam and drove home. And it was a great, great time. Love road trips. Maybe you've been on a road trip. Part of what we're going to talk about, and when you saw our series title, is road trip. Because it's so easy for us to think about this life as being home, time here on earth being home. And it feels a lot more like a road trip, doesn't it? Where you're kind of in a new area, you're in a new community, where you don't kind of understand things, and everybody kind of has their own culture. Maybe you've been there. I think about times when I've traveled internationally, it's the same kind of thing. They have a different money system. They have a different maybe language. They have a different way of thinking about things. Maybe you drive on not the wrong side of the road because it's not a moral thing, just a different side of the road. And then I think about what it's like on those road trips. When I find somebody wearing something from the state of Texas and I kind of get a little excited. I'm like, hey, you're from Texas. I'm from Texas. Maybe I see somebody wearing uh, colors from our school, and I start saying, hey, tell me about that. Were you there? Did you go there? Where did you grow up? What was that like? And then all of a sudden, it feels a lot more like our time on this earth, doesn't it? As we have moments where it feels a little bit like home, even though we recognize we're not home. See, I think that's what Peter wants to talk with us about in this first epistle. As our staff was talking about this, and we were having this conversation, the older guys, and I'm now in that older guy statement, right? If we talk about what it feels like to be exiled to Babylon, and then we talk to our younger guys, and our younger guys say, it doesn't feel like we were exiled in Babylon, it feels like we were born into Babylon. And all of a sudden, we recognize how far culture has changed. 
It's not that we got exiled to it. Maybe we were now born into it because everything has changed. And by the way, I'll add this. As people in my age bracket and older, we might use this phrase sometimes, the good old days. I'd really encourage us to avoid the terminology because what we recognize is it's not always been good old days. You know, I went and looked this up. You know, it wasn't until 1975 that the Supreme Court issued a constitutional right for women to serve on juries. 1975. And as scary as that sounds, you want to know what's scarier? Is we have one state of the union that when the 13th Amendment of slavery was abolished, did not like it. And so they did not ratify that until 2013, February 7th, 2013. So when we use the term good old days, let's recognize that maybe we have a nostalgia for days that existed for some of us, but maybe not for everybody. Because when we come to 1 Peter, what we recognize is you could look back and say there have been some good days, but there's some really hard days. And so I'd like to encourage you to open up your copy of Scripture to 1 Peter. If you haven't yet, you can go into that YouVersion app, go to events, and you'll pull up Grace Church there if you would like to do that. You certainly can follow in a hard copy of Scripture. If you want to do that but don't have a Bible, we've got some available in the back of the room on some carts for you. Road trip. What does it look like to recognize we're just traveling through this place? Because we find ourselves so often trying to make this place home. I think Peter wants to warn us against it. If you've got a copy, we're going to begin right there in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, as we read this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Right off the bat, in those first couple of verses, we have two important parts uh, of information that we need to take note of. One is, who is the one writing this? Well, Peter tells us it's him. If you're familiar with Scripture, you may know this. Sometimes he's called Simon Peter. That's because his name was Simon before becoming a disciple. And when Jesus called him to be a disciple, Jesus changed his name, which is, I think, in part why he wants to call attention to this. Peter, I, Peter, I'm not living under my old identity. This isn't because I want to write this. This is because God has called me to do this. And he uses the name Peter, which was the name Christ gave to him. And he says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, that word apostle can just mean someone who is sent. But when it comes to the office of apostle, there's some different criteria. Peter certainly uh, makes both of those cases. as one who's sent, but he also meets the criteria to be an apostle. I think right off the bat, Peter would want you and I to know he's writing this under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't his message. This is a conduit. He's nothing more than a conduit through which the Lord Jesus Christ wants to speak to you and to me that we might be alert. He is speaking with the full authority of the, of the Lord behind him when he says this. And then catch who he writes it to. The audience. To those who are elect exiles. Those who are elect. Those people who have come to faith and they're living away from home. They're on this road trip. Now, they were always on a road trip because this place is not eternal. 
They're just more aware of it. Where are they? Well, if we look at these slides, we can see where home would have been for them. If you come out of this Jewish faith and you come to faith, where temple is, where their faith would have been, where Jesus was born, you see that over on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea, but that area that would have been called Asia Minor, Turkey. And so let's zoom in. That's the block where we're looking at. And when we come even bigger, you can see those are the names. If you look back in, the, in your copy of Scripture in verse the end of verse 1, those are the people. Those people who are living there away from home. They've got a different language. They've got a different place. They've got a different way of thinking about the world. They've got a different plan. They're not with family. They're not with extended family. Road system's different. Everything's going to be different. Think with me about what that's like. When you and I have found ourselves in those positions, where when you travel, and if you're traveling with people, it makes it a little bit better, right? But if you're by yourself, if you're sitting in that hotel room by yourself and you think, I'm in for the night. I don't even know that I want to go down and get food. I don't know. It's just I don't know anybody. I don't want to go sit by myself. It feels lonely. I feel lonely or being out somewhere. It's a hard place to be. Maybe you need some encouragement. Maybe you need somebody that knows you, somebody that knows your name, somebody that can build into you, encourage you. And that's what Peter's trying to do here. He said, I want to tell you, I'm writing to those of you that are away from home. You feel like foreigners because you are, because you're not home. Kind of like those road trips. So he wants to remind them a couple of things. One, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This is God's plan. God had this. And sometimes we get hung up on those words, foreknowledge, and we get stuck in that. Well, is God sovereign? And if he's sovereign, what's our role in that? See, I think even in that idea, we're limiting God to the reality of how we experience time. Because you and I experience time that yesterday was past, today is present, tomorrow will be future. But when you're God and you're talking about God who's over all of creation, he exists outside of time. That foreknowledge has more to do with the way we view things. He says, God's put you in this place. And so when we think about that, that's an encouragement to me. God's not abandoned us on this road trip. He's here. He hadn't forgotten about us. But we find ourselves in this position, and he says, for the sanctification of the Spirit, that we've been set apart to grow in what the Lord's calling is for us, for obedience to Jesus Christ, is even on the road trip we have to obey Christ. It's not just because you're out of town, and that happens too often, Right? As we hear stories about people traveling and they leave their identity in Christ and their walk with Christ at home and then they go out on the road and it's like, I can just be whoever I want to be because nobody knows. It happens all the time. I hear those stories all the time. You probably do too. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace and peace. Because grace always precedes peace. It's the loving movement of the Father stepping into our life that in His grace, that unmerited favor that He shows us where He gives us strength, encouragement, love, support, empowering. When He gives us those things through His grace, all of a sudden our hearts begin to have a little bit more peace. And all of a sudden peace begins to prevail in my life and in your life. In those moments, grace always precedes peace. It's the way that it is. So when we come back and we look at what's going on in this, we recognize the reminder of this, tr- of this truth from, that Paul writes in Philippians. Our citizenship's in heaven. We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I think Paul would jump in with Peter here and say, you know what? I know you feel like you're in exile up there in Asia Minor, but let's be, let's take a moment and be real with ourselves. We're all in exile on this earth. None of us are home. And the danger that you and I face is we try to make this place home. Now, Larry Crabb in his book, The Safest Place on Earth, and it got renamed uh, Becoming a True Spiritual Community. In this book, Larry Crabb makes a statement or uses this metaphor where he talks about a two-story house. And maybe you've had a house like this. And he talked about the first floor, and he said the first floor doesn't work. It's that, that floor that is kind of weird. And so you think, you know what, let me put a coat of paint on it. That'll work. That'll fix it. No, that doesn't work. Let me change the flooring. We need another piece of furniture because the furniture doesn't work. And Crabbe's, Dr. Crabbe's uh, metaphor is this, is we spend our whole life trying to make the first floor work when in reality we were called to live on the second floor because we get so set trying to make it work. And here's the reality. That first floor is never going to work. It just doesn't work. It's broken. And that's the reality of this world for us, is you and I can find ourselves living, trying to say, you know what, let me just add a coat of paint. That'll solve this world. It doesn't solve the world. You know what, I need another piece of furniture. That'll solve the, no. This world is hopelessly broken. We were created to live on the second floor, even though we're walking through a first floor world right now. And it's against that backdrop that he finishes this chapter this section that we're going to look at today. Because I think what Peter wants to tell us is this. He's going to tell us, how do we live on the first floor when this is where we are stuck, right? While we're in exile? How do we live here? But he wants to tell us a couple of things in the rest of this section. Before he gets to tell us how to live in this world, he wants to say, but let me tell you a couple of things about what God did for you. Let me encourage you, because in the loneliness, in the despair of being on this road trip away from everything, let me encourage you with a few things. And the encouragement he gives us, it's phenomenal. Look with me, if you would, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as he moves into this, I want us to capture this idea is that when he begins to think what God has done for him, he busts out in praise. Now, I don't know your spiritual walk. I don't know when was the last time you had this moment that you thought about all that God did for you and it evoked such joy that you couldn't contain it. Because I think that's exactly what's happening here. He's getting ready. Grace and peace to you. Let me tell you what the Lord has done for you. And as soon as his mind goes to, let me tell you what the Lord has done for you, The first word comes out of his mouth. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I wonder how often we think in those terms because he begins to outline it. It's according to his great mercy. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He busts out in praise. Because he said, let me tell you what God has done. It's according to his great mercy that you've been born again. 
If you have a familiarity with Scripture, you may remember this character named Nicodemus, John chapter 3, where Nicodemus wants to know about eternal life, and we're told that unless one is born, again, one is born spiritually, that they will never see the kingdom of God. Later in that same chapter is where we hear, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever shall perish, excuse me, whoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so all of a sudden Peter finds himself in this moment where he says, it's according to his mercy. We've got a calling on our life based on him because he intervened in my life and in your life in such a way. And let me just say, if you're here this morning and you say, I don't know what it's like to break out in song about the goodness of God because I haven't seen that in my life. The simple truth is this, is God loves you and he redeemed you. He paid for your sins. He wants a relationship with you based on what Jesus Christ accomplished on that cross. Our sin drove a wedge between us, and the wage of that sin was death. Somebody has to pay it. But if somebody hadn't earned that wage themselves, they could pay it for somebody else. That's Jesus. That's what he did for you and I. He came to this earth. He lived a life you and I couldn't live, never sinned, doesn't have to pay his own wage, so he could pay another person's wage. But if you conquer death, you can pay everybody's wage. That's what Jesus did. All of a sudden, that invitation is there for all of us to have that. It's a living hope. It's not a dead hope. It's a living hope. It's alive. It's vibrant. It's getting you and me through the day, even though we're in exile. Even though we're in exile. And I guess I would ask you to consider, what are the things that this world puts their hope in? A bank account? A political system? Maybe their works? Maybe they're good enough as a person? He says, no, God has given us this living hope. It's alive, it's vibrant through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's all there. But look, he says this inheritance is is sure. What about it? It's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading. It can't be consumed, it can't be tarnished, it doesn't diminish, it is inexhaustible, it is there. You think with me, been to Colorado, I had the chance to go to Colorado twice this year, and I'm fascinated by weird things, I will tell you that. If I see stuff on the news about, excuse me, on TV about this, I will watch it. Number one, Supermax Prison. It's where the worst of the worst criminals go. It's in Florence, Colorado. It's terrible. And I read about all the people that are there. The worst of the worst, the criminals that everybody knows are there. And I read about how secure it is. And I think, you know why it's secure? Because what's behind those walls matter. And when you have something that matters, you guard it or you protect it. I think about the North American defense system. You might know it as NORAD, right there in Cheyenne Mountain in Colorado Springs. And I I drive past that mountain, I think, oh, that is so awesome. Because what's valuable, we protect. And what that ratio is, how valuable it is, we protect it more. And what I would want you and I to see is when we come to this salvation of ours, this inheritance is ours, it's being guarded in heaven by God himself. Your inheritance is safe. It is secure. God is protecting it. It is there for you. We can trust it because of who he is. We've got this hope. And when we talk about hope in biblical terms, know this. Hope isn't the way we use it. I hope it rains this week. I hope I can get this done this week. See, that's the way we use it. In the scriptures, hope doesn't mean that. Hope means a biblical certainty of something that has not yet happened. We don't wonder if it's going to happen. It just hasn't happened yet. 
the hope of our salvation isn't that I hope it comes through, I hope God's up to the task, I hope that I'm good enough. No, Jesus was good enough. He didn't sin. He paid the price for you and me. Our salvation is secure based on him and who he is, not on you and me and how we walk in this earth. Our hope is secure. Hope, biblically, it's something that's in the future that hasn't happened yet, but there's no possibility that it doesn't happen. The hope of our salvation. I know you're living in exile. I know that you're lonely. I know it feels scary. I know it feels like you're in another world. I know. But take joy, brothers and sisters in Christ. The hope of our salvation is coming. It's more than just a hope. Look at it. It's also the joy of what it means for us now. Look with me, if you would, at verse 6. In this you rejoice, not in knowledge, not in whatever you're going through, not that the best this world has to offer. No, in this you rejoice because your salvation is secure. It's coming. This is a biblical hope. It's going to happen. Think about all the people that rejoice in things of this world. He goes, no, this is far deeper than this. In this you rejoice. So now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. This world hurts. Just a little while. On the span of eternity, right? In eternity, your arms aren't long enough, right? Because it's forever going backwards. It's forever going forward. In the span of eternity, the, the 60, 70, 80, whatever years we have on earth, as they get longer in each direction, our little spot on the time frame of history gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And he says, I know, I know that all of a sudden we've been grieved by various trials. You recognize he doesn't diminish the fact that we're grieving the trials that we face. He doesn't, he doesn't chastise us. He doesn't say, I can't believe you're grieved by that. No, he said, I know you're grieved. This world hurts. It hurts to live in exile. I get it. But recognize as God's doing something. And it, it's not going to be that long. It's not going to be that long because the hope of our salvation is coming. So it's not that long. But recognize this. Even while they're going on, they're not worthless because all of a sudden, what we see is that it's testing our faith. More precious than gold that perishes, though, it is tested by fire and may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Oh, it's not that long. Just hang in there. Salvation's coming. Just hang in there right now. And recognize if you're grieved by it, it, it it's okay. Be grieved by it because this world is broken. It's a reminder that this world is broken. It's also a reminder that this place isn't home. But these trials aren't wasted because they're purifying your faith. What you're learning in each step of the way is the things that I put my trust in when I get grieved, when I find myself unsettled, is I find myself putting my faith in all these different things. And what's happening in those trials is God is saying, see, that can't, that can't cash the check. That can't cash the check. I'm the only one that gives hope. I'm the only one that can do this. I'm the only one that can give you joy in the midst of life circumstances. And all of a sudden, our tri those trials that we face and endure are building up and purifying our faith so that our faith is more focused on Christ and the other things begin to diminish. Be thou my vision. Verse 8. So you've not seen him, you love him. You've not seen him, you love him. What a moment, right? If you were here last year, we talked about all these characters last summer. And I was the one that actually preached the message on Thomas. And we know him as Doubting Thomas. And, and that seems so unfair. And I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that message if you want more context for what I'm about to share. But 
that when Jesus resurrected, when he, when he rose, he shows up where the disciples are behind a locked door. They're hiding in fear. Thomas isn't there. And so he sees all the other disciples. And then the disciples go and tell Thomas, hey, he's alive. And Thomas says, what? No way. I won't, I won't believe it until I see it. And we pick up where the story, Jesus says to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. There's a blessing there for you and me. You catch that? Blessed those who, who believe but haven't seen. And Peter, as he writes this, Peter has seen him. And so that's one of the things about being an apostle, the office of apostles, that you've seen the risen Savior. And so he looks around, and he's writing to a group of people that said, though you've not seen him, you love him. That's our story if we know the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, my goodness. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Have you had that moment? where you just feel the Lord kindling something in your heart, and like, oh, this is good. And you and I can look up and say, I mean, but this is a terrible situation. And you're like, but it's so good. And you and I can say, well, this is terrible. I don't know what's going to happen, but this is so good. And then people we work with and talk to, maybe his family members, like, I don't understand where you're, why you seem so happy. You're like, because God is so good. Because that's the Lord's work in my life and in your life. He's able to bring that about because the hope of our salvation becomes the joy of our salvation. And look at where it goes from there. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This isn't talking about our salvation as in soteriology, eternal judgment. This is talking about saving us, preserving us through the trial. It's God's doing the spiritual work in you and me. All of a sudden, we have the capacity to move through it. Because of his work in my life and in your life, that's the hope of salvation. That's the joy of salvation. But it's not just that, because God gives us this incredible opportunity. Look at verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. The prophets wanted to know this, and they wrote about this. And they shared it with you and me. It's building our faith, the scriptures, everything in here inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were, not, they were serving not themselves, but you and the things they have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Those prophets knew what they were writing was going to be an encouragement to us. What a moment. That becomes the witness. We've got the hope of our salvation. We have the joy of our salvation. We have the witness of our salvation. God's at work, and he's changing us. And as we go on this road trip, we find ourselves having impact on other people. Where did it begin? It began with the angels. You see that? Things into which angels long to look. See, here's the amazing thing. Our culture loves, loves angels. And we love to elevate angels more significantly than Scripture does. What do I mean by that? Humanity, you and me, we were made in the image of God. Angels are not made in the image of God. When you and I sinned and rebelled against God and there was a wedge put between us, a chasm, 
Jesus came to redeem humanity, those who were made in the image. You realize that in, in scriptural history, what we know is there was a point in time where angels had a choice to either choose to go with God or choose to go with the one we know as our adversary, Satan. And there was a point in time, it's just a point in time, make your choice, angels. You either are with God or you're against God. Those that chose to go against God, you and I know as demons. They're known as fallen angels. But recognize, God didn't seek to redeem fallen angels. He did seek to redeem humanity. And we hear it so often when we hear a loved one or a family member who passes away and we hear they got their wings. And what I want to say, and if you've done it, I want you to hear me say this. Your loved one matters more than angels. Take comfort in that. Be encouraged by that. Angels never had the chance to be extended the grace of redemption. I think that's why he's saying is the holy, that things into which angels long to look, they've got an opportunity to see the witness of you and me as we walk with God, to see the hope of our salvation, the joy of our salvation, and the witness it is that God has redeemed us and that he could speak into the brokenness of my world and your world. See, grace actively involved in the life of a person is a huge witness. And the angels take note, and that's all in there. What a moment. See, when we come to this world, it feels a bit like we're walking through uh, a dark room blindfolded, right, with Legos on the floor and mousetraps on the floor. And you walk, and you're just walking, and you can't see anything, and you step on that, and it hurts. Maybe it clamps down on your toe or your foot, and you're like, oh, and we walk further. And that feels like this world, doesn't it? We're just walking. I read this week where there is this new act before Congress that wants to talk about the fact uh, that they want to legalize abortion in all 50 states at the federal level up until delivery. And I think, what in the world? What have we done? We value each and every image bearer from conception forward. And I read this stuff, and I'm like, oh, it feels like darkness. It feels like darkness. Lord, where are you in this? I feel like I'm in a foreign land. And you and I can go on and on with those stories, right? It's the reality. And what I'm met with this idea is I'm trying to fix the lower floor. It's broken. That lower floor room is never going to work. And I'm so busy at times trying to, let's slap a coat of paint on it. That'll solve the problem. Oh, let's go to a furniture store. That'll solve the problem. And what we realize is we're just passing through this lower floor. We're just passing through. We were made for a different place. And all of a sudden, we start coming through that. And all of a sudden, we come back to this, the hope of our salvation, the joy of our salvation. And now the witness of our salvation. See, when we come to this idea, Lord, have you forgotten me? This life is so hard. Where are you in this? And we come to a passage like this out of Luke. Consider the lilies. Consider how those flowers grow. They don't toil, they don't spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And here's our takeaway. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Oh, he is intimately involved in caring for you and me. Look at the grass. Look at the flowers. Here today, gone tomorrow, image bearers are eternal. 
And if he cares for something that's here today, gone tomorrow, how much more will he care for you? So how do we walk through this place? How do we walk through this lower floor? How do we walk through or drive through on this road trip? I'm telling you, it's a dangerous place. Legos abound. Mousetraps abound. How do we do it? And how can we do it in a way that is a witness of our salvation? I think Madeline Lingle, you may recognize her name, was onto something when she said, we do not draw people to Christ by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. That's a different way of looking at it, isn't it? See, our eschatology, the study of end times, the way we understand the scriptures, we know the world's getting darker, 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 darker. We know that. You know what's incredible? Is we can only appreciate light in the darkness. If you held up your cell phone right now and turned on the light on the back of your phone with all the lights on, I don't know that we could see it. But turn off all the lights in here, have one person light up their cell phone, and all of a sudden we're going to be like, okay, I feel a little bit better. I can see light. See, what happens to us is if we are showing them a light that's so lovely and a world that gets darker, 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 and the church is becoming brighter, brighter, brighter because the world's getting darker, 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 guess what happens? The lost world sees the hope of our salvation, the joy of our salvation. That becomes the witness of our salvation. And all of a sudden, they're like, hey, tell me more about this light. I'm living in darkness. I don't know how to live in darkness. It's terrifying. And you and I have the opportunity to say, it's not my light. It's the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what he's taking care of for me. My salvation is secure. He's guarding it. There's a past. He brought me into it. There's a present. He's guarding it. There's a future. He will bring me home. What a moment. I don't know how often or how well we're doing it because last week, Scott McConnell and Lifeway Research came out with this and it says Christians often compete to be the most right and that impacts how we treat others individually and socially. But if Madeline Lingle's right, that we don't win people by arguing with them and showing them how wrong they are and how right we are. If what she said is accurate, then I read this and think, oh. Well, I think he goes on to say two noticeable reasons stand out among the reasons young adults have stopped attending church for at least a year. Those people that are between ages 18 and 22, those people that, that are deciding the course of their life, right? I mean, no, no small thing. They're setting the course for what their future is going to be. And look at what they found. Church members who are too judgmental and hypocritical, 32%. One out of every three, one out of every four, our church's stance is on political and societal issues. That's why we don't want to be political. We want to shine a light on Jesus Christ. He's our light. We want to show a world the beauty of Jesus Christ. We don't want to settle for these lesser things. Plus, it's driving a wedge. You know what nobody said? The church is driving me away because they love Jesus too much, because they're so committed to the scriptures. No, we reduced it beyond that. And all of a sudden, what we find is the danger that is there. See, we find ourselves in a situation, and I'm sure you've noticed it. Next week, we've got a guest speaker who's coming in, Dr. Preston Sprinkle. He's a scholar. He's also pastoral. When our elders started looking at who could we bring in to help us think through LGBT issues. The question before us was, how do we go about finding the right person? How do we do that in a way that would honor the Lord, in a way that would honor who we are as a church? 
So we started going in. Elders started researching person after person. We're reading books, watching YouTube videos, listening to podcasts. We're doing everything we can do to find the person that we think. In the end, what the elders came down to was where they found two. And the two that they found each specialize in something a little bit different. One of them is a scholar that is in academic ministry. He's coming in February. Dr. Sprinkle, who's coming uh, next weekend, is a scholar. He's got his PhD uh, in theology, but he's also a pastor. And what we found when we started talking about Dr. Sprinkle was the fact that we don't really align with him on every issue, but we align with him on the essential issues. And what he helped us think through, what we saw or wanted him to help us think through, was how to love people better. See, this community, this LGBT community, looks up and says, the church hates us. I'm okay if, if a community says they don't affirm our behaviors, but if they say the church hates us, then maybe there's room for us to love people more effectively. So it's against that backdrop that the decision was made that we feel like he offers us something that we couldn't find anywhere else. Which is why when I saw him on Twitter and I saw this statement pop up of his that says this, Dear Christian, if your favorite news outlet, and I'll throw in if it's network news, if it's CNN, if it's Fox, if it's MSNBC, I'll add in if it's a blog, a podcast, or another writer, stunk your desire to love your neighbor, regardless of partisan affiliation, it's pushing away from the heart of Jesus, and it's time to turn it off. We could do better. We could do better at loving our neighbor, which, by the way, seemed to be pretty significant to Christ when asked, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And the Lord said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second one's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. See, the question for you and I would be this. As we're on this road trip through this world, We've got the hope of our salvation. We've got the joy of our salvation. We've got the witness of our salvation. We've got our path. We're going. We're familiar with the loneliness. We're familiar with the trials. We're just going to keep moving forward because that's what God's called us to do. But what if along the way on this road trip, you know what would have been terrible, right? Is if when we were in California, anywhere on that road trip, if I saw somebody wearing the great state of Texas and being rude and ugly to wait staff, and you're like, oh, I'm from Texas. I don't want to see that. Because what we recognize is everybody who wears our clothes represents the whole. Each individual represents the whole, don't they? The question before you and me is when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. We want to bring in somebody to help us think through how we can love our neighbor more effectively. That's our hope. And if you want to join us, we'd love to have you. The seminar is three sessions on Saturday. He will be in the pulpit next Sunday morning. You can sign up through that Church Center app if you haven't and you would like to. We'd love to have you join us. We're excited about what that's going to be. We're on a road trip, places and home. Let's be mindful of that. Let's keep our eyes set on our salvation, what he's done for us, what he's doing for us today, and what he will do for us into the future. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible-teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com. 
or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.